You are listening to the Bridge Community Church Podcast out of Warrington, Virginia. Our church exists to connect you to God, others, and the marketplace. For more information, you can visit us online at bridge4life.com. Thank you for listening, and we hope you are blessed by today's message. It's great to see everybody here. Glad you made it a priority to be at church. And uh, just reminding you, next week, Easter, what time is the first service? Some of you had to think about it. Second service and the third service. There you go. Hopefully you can uh, disperse to some of the others. I know you like this sweet time right here, but if you could help us out either 8.30, 11.50, I would really be appreciative. And uh, we usually see about a 30 to 40% increase. And if you look around, that's going to be a challenge. But we're going to get everybody in. And besides, I like these kinds of problems. It beats the alternative. <laughs> anyway, we're going to continue on today. The Gospel of Matthew, renewing hope and purpose. And we're actually going to be reading the story today. Is typically, we call it Palm Sunday. So we're going to be reading the, the account that Matthew records about that particular day. So come on, would you stand with me this morning? Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. And uh, we're going to read about where Jesus is now entering Jerusalem and uh, the events surrounding it. Let's begin. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethage. On the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say to that Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foil of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Now, Holy Spirit, as we look at the word of God today, I pray that it helps us to understand your perspective, your teaching, your values, and your activity as you want it to flow into us and through us. We pray these things in Jesus' name, and everybody said amen. 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 The Lord bless you be seated today. So we're looking at Matthew's gospel account as it relates to the story of Jesus entering Jerusalem for that final time. And he's on his way, and, and in this account, it sets the stage for when Jesus is going to be uh, arrested, uh, tr uh, tried, uh, beaten, crucified, and then resurrect from the dead. And each week I've set up uh, the context of who Matthew was writing to. He was writing to a group of Jewish people 
little past 70 AD, who have just undergone a catastrophic event. The city of Jerusalem has been leveled. The temple has been destroyed. And it's such destruction because of what the Roman government did. It's so uh, devastating, it would be 2,000 years before the Israelites would return, which was in 1948. So utter destruction. And Matthew's writing this gospel to bring them hope, to try to bring them purpose. And it begs the question this, when you, when you look at the stories, you see a lot of reasons as to why those stories in Matthew's gospel are included. But this one is a little challenging. Why would people who have just undergone the most devastating thing that you could possibly undergo, the city's wiped out, the temple's wiped out, a million Jews have been killed, and the rest are dispersed or in slavery. Why would they care about how Jesus entered Jerusalem on a donkey? I mean, you're kind of like, I mean, if, you know, initially you go, if I was in that boat, I would like, I really don't care how he came in Jerusalem. I'm, I'm looking for more specific information, more help related to the crisis that I'm going through. This is why it's important to study the scripture. This is why I say this, and everybody read it out loud. It says what? Text, context leads to pretext. I say that all the time. Why? Because there's a story when we take the time to learn the backdrop. Otherwise, we're just lifting stories out of the Bible. And I've learned this. You take it out of context, you can pretty well get a, a scripture to go any direction you want. So what is it? And so what I'm going to give you here, I'm going to give you about two minutes of seminary training. How many would like to get some seminary training? And I'm not even going to charge you what the seminary charges. I mean, this is just like, but what do you mean by context? Okay? Now you go, well, I understand what you, well, let me give you the, let me give you the bare necessity so you understand. When I say context, what are we talking about? It's really this. Context consists of the culture. Well, obviously, this was written in Eastern culture, Jewish culture, as opposed to Western culture, American culture. So right there, I've got to shift my mind a little bit and make the adjustment. That, it does speak to where we are today, but in order to get the full understanding, I need to back it up and go, okay, I need to understand a little bit about Jewish culture. I need to understand a little bit of what's going on. I also need to understand the word usage. The Bible was not initially written in English, and it wasn't initially translated into the King James. I know that's a shock to some people. They're like, what? Yeah, God did not speak King James. Okay. He wrote the, the Old Testament's in Hebrew, the New Testament is in Greek. So we have to go back. So you have the culture, then you got to look at the language. That's why sometimes I put a word up and I unpack the word because sometimes those other words in other languages have more to them than what that word is in our particular language. Then, then you get into the timeline, okay? When did this happen? Okay, so we know that this happened just after 70 AD that Matthew's writing his gospel and we talked over the past weeks, you know, 64 AD, Rome was burned to the ground. About 85% of the city was wiped out by this fire. And so the Christians were blamed for it. So we have the political capital being eliminated. Then you have in 70 AD, the Jerusalem and the religious capital is destroyed. Nine years later, you know, we read that Pompeii was wiped out by the volcanic eruption on the Mediterranean. And so the trade, the trade route was severely disrupted by a major port being destroyed. And so, and then you look at the momentum. What is the momentum? Well, the momentum is, what was Jesus doing before he got to where he was? What, what was the reason behind him even being where he was and what he was doing? So you go, well, man, that's a lot. I just want to read my Bible and have devotions. How am I supposed to figure all that out? Well, great. See, now, I, now you know why you need to come to church. 
See, I'm gonna, I'm, I, that's one of the things. Coming to church ought to be able to give me something I can't get on my own. On the other hand, what I get here should help me when I go home and I'm trying to have devotions. So I'm trying to give you things that when you're reading the Gospel of Matthew, you go, oh, man, I never saw that before. I mean, I've read it before, but now that I have the culture, a little bit of word usage, pastor has repeatedly done that timeline, and I learn about the momentum. Ah, now I'm starting, oh, man, that whole passage has a different meaning here. Yeah, you start to understand some things. So we're going to look at a couple things as it relates to the momentum of Jesus' life in the passage that we read today. So let me take, you don't read it in the gospel. It doesn't say Saturday, (laughs) Sunday, Monday, okay? But because of the culture, they would have understood these timelines. It was a given because they knew certain activities happen on certain days. You and I are distanced from that. So we need to be told what day of the week is this, okay? The other part is this. I'm giving you the account that Matthew gives. There's a lot of events that I'm not going to talk about this morning inside of this timeline because the other gospel writers included them, Mark, Luke, and John. But for Matthew, they were irrelevant to the audience that he was writing, so he leaves it out. He's not disagreeing. He's just saying, my audience is not interested in some of this. I'm telling them things that they are interested in and can help. So yeah, there's a lot of gaps here. If we put all four Gospels together, we get a great picture, sometimes hour by hour, about what was going on. But Matthew's account is kind of bare bones until he gets to the crucifixion and some of the teachings before that uh, when Jesus is in the temple and then obviously his death and resurrection. So it's Saturday. What was Jesus doing on Saturday? Saturday, he was leaving Jericho. Just a little bit of background from the other Gospels. This is right after he had been to Zacchaeus, the tax collector, his house. Remember that song you used to say as a kid? Zacchaeus, the wee-wee man, was he? He climbed up in a sycamore tree. How many, how many know that? Okay, that's the over 40 crowd. <laughs> we just dated ourselves. The under 40 crowd's going, what? <laughs> what, kind of, what kind of song has wee-wee man in? I mean, that's just... It's creepy, okay? Uh, so he's been at Zacchaeus' house, tax collector, okay? Then Saturday morning, he's walking, he's leaving Jericho. Two blind guys, he heals them. Then he continues the journey. He walks 15 miles to Jerusalem with his disciples, and he enters. Uh, we, in English, we always like to say Bethphage, but it's, that's not how you pronounce it. Remember, it was written in Greek. It's Bethphage. That's how you actually say it, Bethphage. So he goes to Jerusalem, and specifically he goes to Bethphage. Then on, on Sunday, Matthew does not talk about any of the activity that Jesus did. From the other Gospels, we do know what he did on Sunday. But Matthew, he just finds it, it's not important to the storyline. So he doesn't even talk about what Jesus did on Sunday. On Monday, he tells the disciples to retrieve the donkey and colt at Jesus' request. It's, this is when he enters Jerusalem to the cheers of the crowd. It was Palm Monday. And some of you, you went, oh, my faith is now on shaky ground. Listen, it's always been Palm Monday. We just call it Palm Sunday because we don't meet on Monday. So we don't, you know, we can't, we can't, we don't come back together on Monday. So we celebrated them. We just call it Palm Sunday because that's when we showed up. Yeah. Is everybody good? Yeah. 
Still saved. Okay. All right. Palm Sunday is our, is our, it was never referred to that in scripture, that is us. And by the way, that's why you always got to keep the word of God as your center, because man has a way of just getting off base even when man didn't intend to do it. Okay. So he enters through the cheers of the crowd. Now, for the next three days, he's preaching in the temple. And, and Matthew does record all this. Uh, he has, in fact, the teaching I did last week was one of those teachings that Jesus did. He also talks about paying taxes. You know, he's, this is when Jesus goes to the temple and he flips the tables because, you know, they've turned it into uh, a thriving business. And basically, there were areas designated for prayer. There was a men's court, women's court, and a Gentile court. So the only place Gentiles could go was to that first court and pray. And they had taken it over and set up businesses. And basically, you have Jesus going into the temple, and he was saying, the Gentiles are as welcome to access God as anybody else. How dare you take their space from them? And he's basically saying, you give the Gentiles back their space. He said, "That's what he said. You, you have made it into a den of robbers and thieves, and it's to be known as a house of prayer. He was really defending the Gentiles. How many know that's a powerful statement? He was saying, don't you dare marginalize them. Don't you dare take away their access to me. Anyway, I'm digressing. Stop interrupting me. <laughs> so, it is now Thursday after all these teachings. Thursday's when Jesus celebrated Passover. He does it at night. Close to midnight, they leave. They go to the garden. And it's about 2 a.m., 1 a.m., 2 a.m., somewhere in that ballpark. That's when Jesus is betrayed. He is taken. He's arrested. He is tried. And on Friday, so it's early morning, Jesus is arrested. He's tried. The beatings begin, he is crucified, and he's buried. So he's, he's on the cross by noon on Friday. He's buried by Friday evening. And I want you to look at that timeline. On Monday, he's cheered by the crowds. What happened in four days that he's buried? How, do you, how does one go from Jerusalem is stoked, Jesus is here, to Friday evening, Jesus is buried. How does that happen? See, what, what he's showing him is this. How did Jesus handle sudden tragedy? Because the people of the Jewish faith needed to know. Sudden tragedy had hit them. Everything's been wiped out. They don't even have a home. They've lost family, friends, relatives. There's people scattered. They don't even know where they're at. Did they live? Are they fleeing or are they in slavery? I don't know. And so he's using this parallel to say, hey, you know, 40 years ago before you had your tragedy, there was a guy who had the same thing happen to him when he came to Jerusalem. And here's the thing that we ought to learn as followers of Christ. Jesus shows us how to manage tragedy. Jesus shows us how to manage crisis. No matter what you're going through today, he understands you. You don't have a God who doesn't get what you're going through. You have a God who says, been there, done that. Let me walk you through how I managed crisis. And I don't know about you, but one of the best things about Jesus' crisis is this. Somehow, when you come back from the dead, you have authority to get people to listen. Am I right? I mean, somehow when you come back from the dead, it's like, hey, this guy knows what he's talking about. Well, yeah, I mean, I mean, how often does that happen? And so 
he showed, we're going to be getting into this in, in this next week, and Friday will be, you know, I, I don't have time to uh, unpack all that happened in those few hours on Friday, Thursday, Friday, so I'll be, I'll be pack, unpacking on that on Friday, so if you want to hear it, be here Friday evening. That was, okay, that was your chance to go, amen, that's really good. Yeah, I hear you, sure. <laughs> sure. So, what is this story tell the people the Jewish people who now are shaky on where God why did God let this happen to them and why did God let his city and his temple be destroyed and his people almost annihilated and scattered God was supposed to protect us they're they're looking for answers so let's walk through the story as Matthew tells it Number one, let's read this together. Sometimes God calls for us to walk into the lion's den. Notice the very beginning. Matthew 21, 1. As they approached Jerusalem, Jesus is going to celebrate Passover at Jerusalem as any Jew would do who had the ability to get there. Much like the Jews in 70 A.D., who went to celebrate Passover at Jerusalem and the biggest religious celebration of the year becomes the biggest national tra tragedy that has ever happened. And Jesus gets that because he's not going to Jerusalem just to celebrate Passover. He knows what this means. He knows he's not going to be walking out of Jerusalem on his own two feet. He knows what's coming. This did not surprise Jesus. If you go into Matthew 20, the, the chapter before the one we read, Jesus says the Son of Man has to go to Jerusalem and, be die, uh, and die, be crucified and die. So he knows what he's walking into. And the Jews would have been going, why do you walk into a lion's den? We would have never walked into that if we would have known what the Romans were going to do to us. We would have never done it. Why do people walk into a lion's den when they know it's a lion's den? And I can tell you this, there's a lot of things in life that God will not tell you that he's going to keep you from, but he will just see you through it. Yeah, I want to say, hey, you know, no lion's dens in my life, okay? Got that, God? If there's a lion's den, where's the detour? And sometimes God says, it's my will that you go into the lion's den. Can I just tell you what I sometimes say? Would you like to know my private life with Jesus right now? When Jesus says, you've got to go to Lion's Den, sometimes I go, well, I rebuke that. <laughs> Where are these uh, irreligious thoughts coming from right now? I just rebuke those urges. That's terrible. I'm not, I mean, you know, because we just want to go. Part of the deal is I serve God. He protects me. Always. It's a challenge when he says you go into the Lion's Den. And here's the thing. God will never order you to go. He'll say I'm giving you the option of doing it or not. But if you ask me what I want you to do, I want you to go to the lion's den. You say, well, why would anybody do that? Listen, we have this in society all the time. We've seen the school shootings, right? People running out of the lion's den. And then we always hear the stories of people who ran into the lion's den to stop what was happening. Sometimes, sometimes they're law enforcement. Sometimes they're not. Sometimes they're just ordinary citizens who paused and just went the opposite direction of what everybody else was doing because they recognized somebody needed to stop 
what was going on. And so sometimes you don't, you, you choose to, law enforcement do the same way. People are going one direction and law enforcement's going the other. Fire department people, people are trying to get out of a building, out of a situation. And while they're running out, fire department people are, there's, we train people to run into lion's dens. We see it in the military. People who are fleeing for their lives and the military is coming behind, they're, they're taught. The lion's den is your domain. Get in there and take care of it. We see it all around. It's just sometimes it doesn't touch us because maybe we're not in some of those professions. But do you know we need people in our culture who run into lion's dens because they save a lot of people from the lions. If nobody was there, a lot more people would perish. But it's the same way spiritually. We have missionaries who go to countries and they know that if they're ever found out, it's going to be more than just a deportation. They know that. And yet they choose to go into some of these venues. They're not running from the lion's den, they're going to the lion's den. And they are well aware of what could happen to them and their family. We've had some of those folks who have told their testimonies of what's happened to them. They eventually were put out of the country, but not until some things happened to them. Why would they go to a lion's den where they know that's going to... See, God will ask them, but God never forced them. Can I just tell you that's what we do as followers of Christ? Sometimes we just go into things that nobody else is willing to do. That's what we do as a church. That's what we do with missions. That's, that's who we are. We say, that's fine. If you don't know what to do, we'll do it because we have a God who went into the den for us right yeah so Jesus walked into the lion's den number two read this out loud in the lion's den find your find your place to connect with God in the same verse it says and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, what you find is this. Jesus had a spiritual refuge on Mount of Olives. Later on, when he leaves the Passover, he goes to Mount of Olives, he finds Gethsemane, and it's a place that he pours out his heart to God. In the middle of his lions, then, he has a safe place to be with God. I've learned this. In the middle of going through a lion's den, you better have a spot where you have a refuge with God. It might be a place in your house when you close the door, you know nobody's going to bother you. You might go for a walk around your neighborhood and pin it, put in some earbuds so you don't hear or can't hear anything. You, just want, you might go for a walk in the woods somewhere. Some of you who have kids, you just go to the garage, get in your car, and just roll up the windows and slouch down in the car. Maybe they won't find you. Of course, now I just told them where you are. <laughs> We all need a space where we can get with Jesus and know we're not going to be interrupted. And it's just the place we pour out our heart to God. We don't have anybody that's going to interrupt the time. We won't have to explain why are you crying? Why are you, what's all this? What's going on? Why are you, are you, 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 you sometimes you, Jesus had his place in the lion's den where he could find and talk to God uninterrupted unimpeded I can tell you this have a place 
have a place. That's not promising you something bad's going to happen tomorrow, the next week, the next day. But I'm telling you, you live long enough, you got to have those places, man. I'm just telling you. you got to have them to get yourself through. Number three, read it out loud. Whatever God has for our future, it's going to require community with others. Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. We would sometimes think if there was anybody who was a self-made man who didn't need anybody's help, it would be Jesus, right? I mean, hey, you know, you can raise the dead, you can feed 5,000, I mean, you can do all these things, calm a storm. If there's anybody who could say, I don't need any help, I can handle it myself, get out of my way. And yet, Jesus needed this donkey and the colt, and he says, I need two of you to go get it for me. Why would he do that? Because Jesus was trying to control the fact that he wouldn't be prematurely revealed, whether it be to the people or to Rome. And going and getting this donkey and colt could set things prematurely in motion. So Jesus needed somebody to go do that for him. If you live long enough, you're going to finally hit something where you can't handle it by yourself any longer. You're going to need help. It might be a health crisis. And you're going to find out that 30 minutes on the internet doesn't make you a medical doctor. (laughs) And you're going to finally have to pick up the phone or send an email and make a contact about going to seeing what they actually call a real medical professional and have tests and things run on your medical health because you have been unable to solve the problem yourself. Some of you will have something wrong with your house, something wrong with your car. You will do everything in your power to try to fix it. And then you will realize the more you work on it, the worse you're making it because you don't know what you're doing. And you have watched 15 YouTube videos. And you still aren't getting it right because you don't have the right tools right. And then at some point you realize, I'm just out of time. And so you're going to call a stranger or a referral that somebody to come fix your house or somebody to fix your car. You now realize, I need somebody to... I'm just saying, every day we're reminded, I can't do life by myself. And what is it? We do that, and then it comes to spirituality, and we try to box everybody out. I don't need nobody. I hear them talking about spiritual community. I hear them talking about these connection groups. Ah, you know, I, you know that's optional equipment until you hit the crisis, and then you, listen to me. I'm going to tell you something that I have seen over and over and over and over and over again as a pastor. People don't develop a spiritual community, and something hits, and then they want to throw something up on Facebook and they expect everybody who reads the Facebook to rally to whatever crisis they're having. And that is a testament. I'm not against sharing those things. But sometimes the response is not what they need. And then they go, nobody cares and nobody this. And they get the, then they go off on their tangent on Facebook and Twitter and everything else. And you just want to say, you know, that, see, the problem is this. It's hard to care about somebody you don't know. See, that's the obvious thing we're missing. How am I supposed to have a level of care that means something to you if I don't know who you are? But put myself in community, then people learn my story. They learn my family. They learn the momentums of my life. They learn the stuff. I learn stuff about them. And whether they have a crisis or I have a crisis, 
we start to see it developing before it ever gets announced because we have a relationship. And friends have done this. Listen, I'll give you an illustration that I've seen play out over and over. A person will say, I'm watching what's happening in you, and I know you're worried. I want you to know as a friend, I'm worried for you. If this gets too much for you, as your friend, I expect to be the first one you call. That doesn't come from Facebook. That comes from spending time and getting to know somebody. And they say, and in fact, that if you did, if I wasn't your first call, I would be hurt as a friend. That you didn't think that you could tell me. That you didn't think that I would care. That you didn't think I would be there. If it gets, if you get there, promise me I'm your first phone call. Your first text. If I read that on Facebook and you never reached out to me, I'd be crushed. You're going to need somebody. And you know what? It's just the opposite. Sometimes God wants you to be the miracle for somebody else. But you can't do that if you're, quote, independent. I don't need nobody. That's easy to say when everything's going well. Let the lions show up. And you're going to find this out. If I'm looking at that lion, I don't see the one behind me. I need somebody watching my back. Because I can't watch the whole ring of lions. I can only see the lion that I'm facing. I never will see the one that comes from behind me. That's going to take somebody else in my life. This is a great place to say amen. Amen. Okay, that's good. That means you received it. There we go. All right. Number four, read it out loud. Walking in obedience to God opens up prophetic activity. It's part of the story. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a, on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of, of a donkey. Now let me tell you something that happened here. Jesus didn't look at his disciples and go, now listen, it's Monday. On the prophetic calendar, I am now scheduled to ride into Jerusalem, Eastgate. The crowds will be there. Please get the donkey and the colt and be back here in time because I have to fulfill the prophecy of Zechariah 9.9. You guys get this? This is, this is, guys, this is prophecy, okay? Please don't screw up prophecy, okay? Don't be late, okay? Prophecy. So I need you to go because today is the day that I fulfill the prophetic of Zechariah 9-9. Everybody got it? Go team. Jesus, no, he didn't. Fulfilling prophecy was Jesus just doing the activity that God had sent to him. He didn't give the prophetic speech. Fulfilling prophecy was a byproduct of walking in obedience. See, it says in Zechariah 9.9, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. See, one of the misnomers sometimes is, yeah, one of the other gospels will just list one of the animals because it's really the colt that Jesus rode, so they just mentioned the colt. But here we learn, Matthew's like, no, this is really important. To the Jewish people, this is very, very important. It was just not the colt. It was the mama who came along, the donkey. So they brought both because 
bringing both was a fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9. See, how many people would actually prophesy that mama and the colt had to go together because they would have just said, it's just the colt. But they made a very unique prophecy. Mama donkey's going to be coming too. She's going, to be, she's going to be on the trip. Well, that's like, that's ridiculous. Why would anybody do that? Because it was showing the uniqueness of the prophecy. It was so unique, you couldn't miss it. Because how do, how do, you, how do you control that? You can't control it. It either happens, it's in God's control. And how, what releases God? His activity, obedience. Now, when I say it releases prophetic Sometimes people get a little nervous when I speak on the prophetic because they go, okay, here comes the woo-woo factor. <laughs> now listen to me. The Holy Spirit is a part of our dimension, of our life, of our expression, of what we do. I was speaking with somebody this past week, and we were talking about the gifts of the Holy Spirit and what it, and what it looks like. And I said, what's happened is this. I was talking to this person. They go here. I said, what's the, pro the problem that we have is, as a whole, sometimes it is presented as the gifts of the Spirit, and it's presented in the box of a church service. And I said, no, it's about a way of life. Paul talks about walking the Spirit, living the Spirit, pray in the Spirit. He's talking about an expression whereby you do life that way. And of course, then the question begs, well, what does that look like? I don't want to walk out. I don't want to walk around Main Street, you know, all woo-ish. Like, yeah, how do, how do, what does that look like? And so I, I give you this illustration. You're a business owner or... You're just a leader in the community. Maybe you head up an organization. Maybe you lead a group or whatever, a, even a connection group. I want you to hear this. What do leaders do? Leaders see a preferred future. And then they come back to reality, and they try to take the people that are with them today to the preferred future that they are aware is possible. You do that in a connection group. You have a series of lessons. You say, we're going to be going through this, and by the end of our connection group, you will be this. If you're in any volunteer organization in a business, if you are a leader in the business where you work, if you're in education, you can see where your students need to go. That's prophecy, people. The ability to see. And then come back to where you are and say, I can take you there. Your students, I can take you from here to there. And so you go, well, so let me tell you, if you can't do that as a leader, you're a horrible leader. You're a horrible leader. How can you lead if you don't know where they should go? So it's kind of like basic 101. If I'm going to be a leader, I've got to have some propheticness about me. That doesn't mean I'm walking around all woo-ish. It just means I can see things ahead, come to today and say we need to do X, Y, Z so that when we get there, this is what it looks like or can be. So as a leader, how do I pray? Oh God, please activate that. Because, listen to me, I mean, I'll tell you as a pastor, God, I can't lead those people if you don't show me where we're going. I didn't go to a prophetic school. You know, I didn't go to, hey, we got a class, prophecy, one-on-one. No, it's just, God, if you're going to ask me to be the leader, you have got to activate that gift in me. 
I have to have the ability to see where we need to go and what we need to do so that I can come back and t explain to the people what I've seen and what I know and why we should do this. You need to gift the prophecy as a parent or you'll never see the potential that's in your kids. And then when you recognize you need prophecy, you also realize, oh God, I need wisdom. I need knowledge. I need discernment. See, see how you, all of a sudden now the whole dimension of the spiritual is, is brought to you because you are aware, man, I need these gifts for functioning. I don't, I don't need giftings to be famous. I need giftings to function so that I know what I'm doing. And so the People know what I'm doing. If you don't stop asking questions, I'm never going to get finished. Here we go. Number five. Everybody, okay, last point. Here we go. When we walk in obedience to God, our life can bring hope in others. How we live our life impacts people around us. Sometimes we get a conversation, sometimes we don't. But they say, I watched you. And God showed me that that was possible with me as well. Your life inspired me. Watching you showed me it can happen. It does work. Watching you helped me to trust God. It says the crowds that went ahead of him and those who followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. You know, we read that and we're like, wow, that, that was just absolutely. Most people have no idea what they were saying. Because we, I, I asked, I said, what do you think Hosanna means? They went, yay God. I said, well, no, it's not a, it's not a, it's not that type of praise. See, you know, it, Hosanna's the actual Greek word. That's how you say it, Hosanna. So what were they saying when they said that? That's translated Hosanna, that's actually what it means or what it says, but I said, what does it mean? And it means this, save us, be favorable to us. Save us, son of David. The people were crying out, save us. We think you're the one who can change everything that's going on, please. Be favorable to us. See, they got their hopes dashed in 33 AD when Jesus was crucified because they thought he just might be that. And then he died. Now, how many know the resurrection has a way of changing everybody's opinion? And then he says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they were blessing him. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They were thanking and praising Please prosper, Jesus. Bless him. Save us. Bless him. How many know that changes the whole dynamic? They were so touched and so moved in his ability to save them. They put their cloaks on the road. A sign of royalty that the colt would walk on. Please save us. And now, 40 years later, after this, they're crying out again, save us. Matthew goes, I'm going to help you get there. 
That's what that resurrection story in his version is all about. Showing us, yeah, he died, but he rose again. And there lies your hope. Can I tell you as we wrap this up today? It matters to God what's happening in your life. The enemy will lie to you. Nobody cares. That is a lie. You got a room full of people who care. Can't care if we don't know you. We care. That's why we're here. And we're here to learn about who you are so that we can care. So there's a reciprocal responsibility here. A relationship is two people who take the initiative. And can I tell you this? God's already taken his initiative towards you. He's just asking that you reciprocate the initiative back to him. And everybody said amen. Come on, let's stand to our feet as we wrap up the service today. Come on. Can you praise him for being a God who can save? Come on, praise him. Thank him that he's Hosanna, the God who saves us. Come on, praise him for that today.